Hello and welcome to Halftime Scholars, the series that features the work of independent and emerging researchers. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Shamara Wettamuni, an expert in ethno-religious conflict and discrimination and identity formation in Sri Lanka. Shamara's research focuses on the forgotten 1915 anti-Moor pogrom, a significant episode of ethno-religious violence in Ceylon. Her examination uncovers cycles of intolerance and victimization, revealing the role of colonial policies and discourse in fueling tensions between Sinhalese and Moors. Shamara, thank you for joining us on Halftime Scholars today. Hi, Suren. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Like we always start, maybe if you can tell us a little bit about your work before your PhD and how it's led to the work that you did for your PhD. Sure. There was very much a link between my pre-PhD work. I worked at a think tank called Verite Research that's based in Colombo. I was on the politics research practice and I focused on religious violence taking place, particularly targeting the Muslim and Christian communities in Sri Lanka in the post-war period. And it was that violence and the discrimination and the narratives or stereotypes that emerged in the targeting of these religious minorities that got me interested in the historical origins of it, which then took me to my DPhil topic. So that's interesting. Maybe if you can expand a little bit more about your specific PhD topic itself and reference the methodology that you adopted in going about your research. Sure. So I looked at the history of ethno-religious violence in Sri Lanka during British colonial rule. So I, I refer to it as Ceylon as it was then known. And I focused on the period between 1853 and 1915 with the 1915 anti-Muslim pogrom as the key event of my thesis. However, I used the event of a pogrom and of this fairly well-known episode to explore less familiar histories like that of Islamic revival, alongside Buddhist revival, which had significant scholarship on it. I looked at transnational histories to do with religious assertion, identity formation, and how these played out in a very local example in Ceylon at a time of economic change. So I was particularly interested in the economic sphere and the religious sphere. I focused on two communities in particular, the Sinhala Buddhist community and the Muslim Moors. But it was impossible not to mention, for instance, Christians, Hindus, Tamils, and other groups on the island. In terms of methodology, sorry, Suren, you had asked about methodology. It was an archival project primarily. I didn't stick to any particular approach as such. In certain chapters, I use connected or comparative histories. I used globe, tools from global history to basically get at different perspectives because of the variety of different actors involved in my thesis. So I took a microscopic history of the fez, an object. It's a cap that was worn by Moors, particularly at the turn of the 20th century, to explain ideas connected to religious assertion, religious loyalties with the Ottoman Empire at the time. When I looked at the, how the context of the First World War impacted a local disturbance, I used things like comparative and connected history. So I didn't want to straightjacket myself into a particular methodological approach, but I just let the evidence and empirical investigation lead how I conducted my work. Yeah, that seems quite fascinating. And I believe using a variety of methodologies would, in that sense, present certain opportunities to explore things in different ways. You mentioned different communities and their identity formation and discrimination and issues around that. Did you find that, maybe if you could talk broadly then, I guess, around the findings themselves, were there instances of 
were certain similarities between these various groups or was there anything that surprised you that when you applied these various tools that sort of came out through your research? I mean, one thing is that it was very interesting having looked at the current landscape of Islamophobic discourse. It's very interesting that a lot of the stereotypes and tropes that we see on social media today, for instance, were actually on the front page of newspapers in the early 20th century. So it's quite fascinating that insecurities, grievances against this particular ethno-religious group, not new actually, as, as some people have thought that it may be in reaction to the post-war context, but these are long-standing grievances. In a sense, the message then targeting them or vilifying them has not changed. It's the medium that's changed from newspapers to social media. But I also went a lot further back and the traditional historiography has in terms of looking at 1915 as a watershed moment in our ethno-religious landscape, ethno-religious violence landscape. I did found that find that actually conflict and patterns of violence, discrimination, intolerance are actually cyclical. And you can't blame one community in particular this is something that's actually quite particular to the colonial period. It differs in the post-colonial period. But in the colonial period, we see that actually all these groups are contesting their space, their religious rights and freedoms, and they're coming into clashes with one another. It's not one group versus another. There are no fixed perpetrators and victims at this period. And it was quite fascinating to unravel or pull back the layers on this history that not much work had been done before. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. And, and you mentioned a couple of times 1915 as being a key moment. Maybe if you can give us a little bit more detail about that event and maybe draw some parallels that you see in today's landscape. Sure. So the 1915 anti-Muslim pogrom or riots, as it's more often referred to, was a period of violence, six days, when Sinhalese, Buddhists in particular, but also Tamils, also Christians, targeted Muslim Moors in their homes, in their places of worship, and particularly their shops, and essentially committed egregious acts of violence against them between May and June 1915, over a period of six days. The colonial state failed to respond to this violence when it broke out. So the state actually can be blamed for its inaction at the beginning. About four years into the violence, the state misinterprets it, misunderstands what's going on, and wrongly assumes that it's actually a precursor to further violence against the British colonial state at which point the state shifts from inaction to excess. And then they start harassing, or much more than harassing, arresting, extrajudicially killing, flogging, and imprisoning hundreds of innocent Sinhalese civilians, in addition to those actually guilty of crimes. And it's that latter part of the pogrom, actually the state's response, that tends to dominate historical knowledge. When you say 1915, when you say in Sinhala, people think of the repression by the state against the Sinhalese. And while this history is absolutely valid and it is a real and lived experience by large numbers of Sinhalese, what has happened is that we've tended to forget about the initial experience of the original victims, the Moors. I try to focus more on writing back their narratives, on centering their experiences in my history and, and also in particular looking at women because in every history that I've read about 1915 so far, and it is a topic that has been covered fairly well 
as a in journal articles and contained historical investigations, women just feature as a statistic. Four women were raped, and that's all we need. So I did try to uncover their voices, write a bit more about their experiences, and not just as victims, but also as perpetrators, as agent provocateurs on the other side, and write basically their histories back into the narrative. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think the amount of not only information, but narratives and I guess part of the stories that one wouldn't easily be able to, to gather from an event like that and from that history, especially looking at Sri Lanka's recent history in the post-war period, especially in the last five years, given some of the ethno-religious problems we've been having and also the economic downturn and said protests and the state repression that continues. What is your take on some of these, I guess, you mentioned earlier that at that period, various communities were not jostling, but they were trying to have their claim, their stake or space within in that time period. How do you find that probably differing today? What do you think that has the situation changed in any way in terms of the state's response? So I think the biggest difference is who has state power. Obviously, in the period that I'm looking at for my, or that I looked at for my detail was when the British colonial state had power. And every local community had to, in a sense, adjust and respond to that, to hierarchies of power. In the post-colonial state, the power is held by overwhelmingly by Sinhala Buddhists. And in terms of how the state responds to thing, uh, to violence, if we look at recent episodes of anti-ethno-religious violence, oh gosh, you'll have to scrap that bit out. If we look at these recent episodes from, say, 2014 in Alutgama, 2018, the state's response to targeted violence against these communities was equally inadequate. It was just as poor as the British colonial states. And you have to ask why. It's because they're motivated by certain factors. And obviously... In those contexts, there was a lack of motivation. Organizations like Verite Research have done research on the last 20 years of religious violence targeting Christians, and they very often find the involvement of state actors, whether they're overtly involved or tacitly involved in enabling violence, where they're present at the scene of violence and they stand back and allow such things to take place. So I think the biggest difference is who holds state power in the post-colonial period and then what really encourages the state to respond, what motivates the state to respond. Yeah, that is so true. And we can see that being played out to this day in different forums. And I guess the Sri Lankan state, whatever stage in the post-independence period has become progressively more repressive and all communities are being impacted, especially with the Aragalia that you can see everyone is being hunted down and their lives not being made quite easy. That's really interesting. If we move on, Shamara, if we talk a little bit more about you are at the, I guess, the, at the end of your PhD right now, but um, if you can look back and talk about some of the broader challenges you faced while you were conducting the study or at this moment in your journey. Sure. So I finished and submitted my thesis and defended it at the end of last year. So I'm enjoying a rare bit of thinking space and free time at the moment. I think there were challenges that were, I suppose, particular to me and then more general given, obviously, the pandemic when COVID-19 resulted in various challenges, which obviously included the closure of places like libraries and archives and access to sources. 
in general, using the archives in Sri Lanka has proved to be quite challenging, as I'm sure many other historians in Sri Lanka will tell you. Conservation, and I suppose perhaps access to resources for the National Archives is a problem, but it's reflected in the crumbling newspapers that they have. It's reflected in the microfilms on which certain old newspapers are preserved that are suffering from vinegar syndrome, where you can't use it anymore. It smells of acid. Certain books have been eaten by silverfish. And basically, there is a genuine lack of appreciation, I think, among certain circles in government that choose to preserve physical heritage much more than, for instance, documents. They're not seen as important or it's not seen as reflecting glorious narratives of Sri Lankan history and therefore are less worth preserving. And I think that is something that we have to be concerned about as we go forward, because very often I felt that I might be the last person looking at some of these documents, given the poor state they're in. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess, as you alluded to, the record keeping may not be the most up-to-date in terms of mechanisms and some of the other challenges. Maybe if I can ask you this question, what did you discover about yourself throughout this whole process in terms of from the time you started to the moment and to this juncture? That's a really interesting question. There's so many things I could say. I have to say it was a transformative process for me, four years of my life. But one of the things that I really realized actually towards the end of my thesis came to me when I helped by this article written by a professor who works on constitutional law in India, something completely different, Tarun Kaitan, who wrote an article about scholactivism and this idea that the scholar should not really be an activist while doing their research. And in a sense, I'm guilty of that because when I came into this project, the reason I picked the topic, in fact, was because I was so angry about what was happening in today's day and age. What, and I was angry about what I felt was the occlusion of the real victims of the 1915 pogrom. As I mentioned, people tend to, if you talk about 1915, the riots, people think about the state's treatment of the Sinhalese. I think I wanted to go back in there to what correct what I thought was wrong. I realized while I was doing my research, I found things that in a sense contradict this idea that the Moors were always the victims. That's the truth. And so I had to be honest and write it all back. In, and the further I went back in time, the more complex and complicated the picture became. And why we can complicate how you talk about what's happening in today's day and age, it's my job to write history as it was, not as how it has impacted how we read the present. So this idea about collectivism being a problem where you can't be an activist while you're writing your histories, you can go into it perhaps. And when you're talking about your research and disseminating it once it's done, you can maybe wear your hat as an activist. But the scholar has to be purely objective and writing the evidence as it appears rather than how it can be used later on is absolutely vital. And I, I felt if I wasn't conscious of it before, I am much more conscious of it now. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I guess the positionality of the researcher is crucial, I guess, to keep. One can't be totally impartial. One can't be totally unbiased. It's also a journey within oneself in terms of how you navigate all yeah. that. That's really fascinating. Actually, we, I was having a fascinating discussion with my two examiners during my Viva. And one of them said to me, we don't need to fear bias. Bias can be your friend as long as we're conscious of it and that we manage it and we deal with it appropriately. I don't think yeah, bias is not our enemy. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I guess acknowledging that and then shaping the research as well as the output that's created or the knowledge that is co-created from that point. 
That's really interesting. While you were elaborating about this navigating of your positionality, one thing that struck to my mind was that in my research as well, I think even though we are maybe in slightly different disciplines, the core subject matter is quite closely related. Maybe a general take without maybe going into specifics about the actual, not per se teaching of history, but we look around the world, the recent Serbian conflict, 20 years later, now they're having issues again, and they're having, trying to erase that history, which only happened nearly 20, 25 years ago. Taking that sort of example, what is your take on learning from history broadly and trying to not make the same mistakes, not as a nation, but, you know, as a society going forward? What is your general take about that? That's a great question. And it's something that I think about constantly. I think I've mentioned to you that I've set up an organization called Itihas to work on history education reform, non-state history education reform in Sri Lanka, because our public school history syllabus is woefully lacking. We don't teach proper post-independence history in Sri Lanka. And This is a country that since 1948, since independence in 1948, has seen three decade long civil war, two Marxist insurrections and several other episodes of class and ethno-religious conflict. While I understand that people want to focus on the bright side, on the plurality and diversity and the cosmopolitan histories, which I think is absolutely important, I think it's harmful that we hide or shy away from our more uncomfortable or difficult pasts. And I think there are ways that you can teach them. There are ways that we can approach them. But right now, there appears to be no bureaucratic or political will to reform those syllabi, which is why I think you then have to look beyond the state to educate and learn from our histories. Because as you said, if you don't, we're bound to repeat them. It's not just a saying that history, even if it doesn't repeat itself, it tends to rhyme. And we do have to be cautious about that. I mean, this debate is happening not just in Sri Lanka, but also in places like the UK. I mean, if you even take it at a very micro level at universities, at places like Oxford, Cambridge, there is also this idea that you must take roads, must fall. The campaign that to remove Cecil Rhodes, uh, his statue from Oriel College, or Cecil Rhodes, who was obviously a slave owner and, a, and profited hugely from the slave trade. That's in what is now South Africa and Zimbabwe. I don't think there's a clear-cut answer. Yes, you must take it down. But I think this idea of contextualizing is important. If he's going, if there's a good enough reason for him to stay, then he must stay with. We have to make information available and allow them to, we don't need to feed them narratives, but we have to make that information accessible and allow them to then decide once they have it before them. But hiding it from them is, is not the way forward. So true. I agree too. I think it has to, the contextualization is so important so that maybe even progressively we can stop making the same sort of mistakes going forward. So that's really interesting, Shamara. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more about the Itihas project that you alluded to earlier? What's its scope? What are you hoping to do? And how is it at this stage of project development? Yes, it's very early days. Um, It's a non-profit organization that I'm hoping to develop over the next decade or so. It's not something that will, because it's I'm working on what I think is a generational project rather than something that's going to see immediate results. So 
we're about to launch our first project, which is working with the International Center for Ethnic Studies uh, to facilitate seven workshops with history teachers from Sinhala and Tamil medium schools in Sri Lanka. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring them all together over the course of several months. And it will be run trilingually. And we're going to re-envisage how you can teach beyond the history books. So for instance, we want to take them to the National Museum in Colombo. But rather than talking about the exhibits that are there, we want to talk about what's actually missing. There's a lot that's in terms of representation of communities. There's a lot that's missing. And there's also nothing much from the British period onwards. And why is that? Well, actually, the museum was built by the British. It is a colonial structure that we actually have failed to decolonize and connect that with decolonization of museums. We want to do a film screening of a recent film called Gadi that deals quite interestingly with the themes of the caste, gender and colonialism and compare it with other more mytho-historical films that are often used to teach, to impart historical knowledge when it's more fantastical and so on and so forth. So these are just a series of workshops. This is one approach that we want to take through Itihas, but education and research are the two other arms. So this is the training aspect, training of the trainers, of the educators, research more broadly on understudied or underexplored areas, as well as then education through things like podcasts and seminars and other sort of workshops. Yeah, they sound really interesting. I'm sure there'll be a lot of good service that is imparted, especially in that space, which is a really vital area. I guess moving forward, Shamara, and coming probably towards the latter half of our discussion today, I know you alluded to some of the projects that you're working on. What do you think some of the other practical applications you see outside for the work that you're doing at the moment? I'm interested more generally in things like what we can do about the state of the archives in Sri Lanka. It is hard to use, but they are so vital. They serve a hugely vital function, and I would like to get involved. We have a fantastic director general there at the moment, Dr. Nandira Rupasinghe, and she's talking about conservation products, even publications conservation of materials, publications that showcase some of these materials and hopefully garner interest because it's not seen as one of the more exciting places to visit. In fact, I think we need to consider how we use archives and how we can improve their accessibility and ease of use. So that's something I'm interested in in terms of practical application. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's, again, another service that is really important going forward. What, uh, obviously you're keeping yourself very occupied. What are some of the things you do in your spare time when you take off your research hat? I love sports. So that's definitely a way to kind of unwind and clear my head. So playing as many sports as possible, obviously a little harder in the UK because I'm not so comfortable with the cold, but we still make it happen. Travel when possible, obviously made harder in the last few years. Totally nerdy project, which I won't go into too much detail at the moment, but my husband and I are working on a historical fiction book set in Sri Lanka in the 60s, but perhaps more to come on that in the future. Those sound really interesting, and I think it's always good to have these side projects and hobbies to keep you occupied and share your creative interests. I guess my last question for you today is, Sumaru, this is a really exciting time. You've handed in your thesis and you're waiting to graduate. I envy you. I wish I was in the same situation. (laughs) Where do you see your research work, academic career heading to next? What sort of venture is lined up? 
Okay, well, um, I mean, fresh off press, I've recently been accepted or offered a role as a junior research fellow at the Queen's College at the University of Oxford. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a three-year position starting in October, and I'm really excited about joining who seem like a really great faculty there. I, I met them. I was interviewed by the history fellows there. I'm really excited about that and actually returning to Oxford. And while I'm there, of course, the publication or the transformation of my thesis into a book and its publication will be my main priority. And after that, I have a research project that brings my work slightly more firmly into the 20th century that I'm playing around with at the moment. So that's really awesome. Congratulations again. And I'm sure it'll keep you really occupied in the coming years and months. So Shamara, thank you so much for sharing your insights about your journey and the interesting work that you've been doing. I'd like to wish you all the best in your next chapter and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Surin. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. Let us know what you think of the show and leave us a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. We'll see you next month on our next episode. 